coming to you direct from the heart of New York City all the way to wherever you are, you're listening to the VIP Jazz Wall Report. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to this mega show because our guest is a man of mega proportions with a mega personality and a mega message. So take a seat, brace yourself, get ready for a real treat. Any introduction that's given to him doesn't actually do him justice unless I do it, simply because I do it so well. In fact, he should be introducing me for a change. But all I can say is that he's a lion on stage that'll help you get out of your cage. And for many of us, he's the sage of today's age. Without further ado, and all the way from Potter's house to my house, right here in New York City and looking very pretty, the one, the only, Bishop T.D. Jakes. Welcome to Vip's house, Bishop. It's a real pleasure to be here, Vip. How you like me now? <laughs> Nobody can do it like you do. <laughs> <laughs> well, before we begin, I need to settle some beef. All right. I hear through the grapevine you're planning quite a mega party this summer. You're expecting around 85,000 people from That's 30 right. countries. <laughs> So where's my invite, Thomas Dexter Jakes? Because it ain't going to be much of a party without a VIP in it. You know what I'm saying? I hand delivered it. That's why I came to hey. <laughs> I got out of that, didn't I? Oh, my God. I, you know, I was going to say I thought we was tight, my brother. Yeah, I got you covered. Don't worry about it. Now, Mega Fest. Before we begin, I don't, I don't say that I stalk you, but last Sunday, 11 a.m. Eastern, in your sermon, you said, God will not give you the what if you don't know the why. Absolutely. So, why should I attend and what can I hope to get from Megafest? You know, there are a lot of reasons to attend Megafest. I think it's a, it's a family f festival. It's an opportunity to spend quality time with your family and have them exposed to the same values and the same atmosphere uh, that you are exposed to. And I think for many people, that's an attractive thing today. We don't spend the quality time with our family and friends like we really need to, enjoying similar festivities. So I think that's part of the why. Mm -hmm. I also think that anytime you're around other people of similar values, iron sharpeneth iron, you, you brighten each other, you make each other better. The conversations that we're going to have, the events that we're going to have, cross-pollinization of ideas and ideologies from perhaps somebody from California is talking to somebody from Zimbabwe. You don't get those opportunities every day. All those different countries are simulated in one place. We translate into different languages. It's a very unique opportunity to come together for fun, yes, and for family and for friends, but also for an opportunity to fortify yourself intellectually and spiritually as well. But you do a lot of conferences, and this is not a conference. It's a festival, right? It's, yes, it's, I'd say it's more than a conference uh, because it has aspects that are totally entertainment-oriented, uh, mm -hmm. unapologetically so. We've got comedy shows. We've got concerts. We've got trips to, the, to uh, the Dallas Zoo. We've got all types of things to encourage people to have a little a chill time, as it were, to relax, and a me time, as it were, to refresh and refuel themselves. So when you say people, you mean people of all ages? Oh, all ages, from grandma to the grandkids. You can bring anybody. And that's what we mean by family-friendly. You don't have to put your hands over grandma's ears, and yet you can have an entertaining, fun time, festive time, and still do it in a wholesome atmosphere. We had, last time we had Megafest, we had virtually no incidents, no accidents, no drunkenness, no uh, craziness <laughs> that goes on with similar events of that magnitude, and yet we had crazy fun, I mean, hilarious, good times, and it, it was therapeutic. Now you talk about these events, and, and <clears throat> there are quite a few events. One of the first ones that really caught my eye 
because I'm a little devil, um, was <laughs> Woman Thou Art Loosed. And I was quite excited because the devil in me thought it was a place where loose women hang out. I wanted to buy all the tickets so that I could increase my chances, if you know what I mean. But, but really, I mean, you've been doing this uh, theme over the last year or so. Yeah, Woman Thou Art Loosed is a name that we gave to a women's spiritual empowerment sessions that we do. Mm-hmm. And women come from all over the country. And it really centered around issues that were pertinent for women. Uh, at the time that I started it, and still today, the stats are very high uh, on uh, domestic violence, uh, sexual abuse uh, happening to young girls, and those sorts of things that historically the church did not deal with. This created an atmosphere to say to women who have been through things like that, as well as the simple things of maybe divorce or re- recreating yourself, that you can survive uh, the vicissitudes of life, that you can overcome the atrocities and still be effective in your career, in your personal life, in every aspect. Because today, women are challenged in areas to be to wear so many more hats than their grandmothers did. And uh, with that comes stress and pressure and anxiety. And uh, this is an opportunity to spiritually reinforce yourself. But where did you feel the need for this? Because, you know, to the best of my knowledge, women today are more empowered than ever before. Yet they're looking for more empowerment or, or, or they feel lost with all this empowerment? You know, you can't have power without draining a battery. So the more power, the more stress, the more opportunities. Women are developing men issues. Right. <laughs> uh, stress, demands, uh, trying to keep up with the kids and keep up with their life and keep up with their career and remaining relevant and competitive in the job world uh, is part of the things that we face today. We still have a, a glass ceiling uh, that many have shattered, but many have not shattered. And some are still bruised from shattering that glass ceiling. And to fortify themselves and to draw an umbilical cord between uh, your faith and your career to say that one thing is not mutually exclusive to the other but they can enhance each other is, is an ideology that has served uh, many uh, upwardly mobile women very well. My wife said an interesting thing last night um, because I told her about this woman thou art loose. She said actually the men should be attending that to understand their women better. <laughs> She's got a good point there. Uh, and no, I, she doesn't. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know that we'll ever understand them, but yes, we could attend. <laughs> you know what's interesting, though? What has really been interesting in groups of women is the struggle to understand men. And I think at the time Amen. that I started Woman Thou Art Loosed, it, for many women, it was the first time to, to hear a man talk and think about his issues from a male perspective. Because when you think about it, most of the magazines and books that are written to women are written by women for women. And so they get a lot of inundation of uh, female ideas about what men want, but to better understand whether it is your husband, your son, or your boss, how to function in a male environment. Many times uh, women did not grow up in a home with a man or Mm -hmm. a positive male role model. So the cross-pollinization between genders uh, is the substratum of what Woman Thou Art Loose is all about. But then the men aren't going to feel left out because you have this event called manpower. Now, that's not an aphrodisiac, right? (laughs) In in all the years I've been doing this, this you are the first one to ask me that. That left me speechless for a minute. If it were, we would have sellout crowds, you know. (laughs) That's a good idea. I should think about it. But uh, in reality, manpower is just really trying to close the divide, particularly in the minority community. Men are lagging behind in many ways career-wise, mm. academic-wise, they're lagging behind. And and how do we move forward? And, and what is the role of the man in a contemporary society today? That is key.
key because I think yeah. men have forgotten their role. And women have too. And women have too. You know, <laughs> yeah. I mean, uh, women are trying to be so masculine these days. Um, and I find, you know, trying to be a man is a waste of a woman. Well, here's the situ- situation. The, the ideas about roles and, and gender roles has changed drastically even in the last 25 years. Right. So a lot of men were prepped for a woman that doesn't exist today. Mm-hmm. This is you are not married to your grandmother, <laughs> okay. And so, as you as as women evolve as as a species and as professionals and as career models, the man is left with no choice but to adapt to its environment. And and I, one of the great things about being a human being is that we are so adaptable to our environments, whether it is uh, outward climate Very changes true. or sociological changes. Mm-hmm. We learn how to adapt and function well in the process of making that transformation. Uh, often there is a great deal of frustration because we have a tendency to cleave to how it used to be rather than to adapt to how it is. Wow. Men and women aside, now you got something for the kids? Oh, we've got something for all ages. Uh, we, we've got something for teenagers. We've got young adult uh, outreaches. We've got uh, uh, Megafest After Dark for uh, young adults. We've got teenage events. We've got children's events. We're giving out book bags to kids going back to school, getting them fired up with the possibilities of careers and options. We're going to be doing displays and technology and really trying to get the imagination of the kids uh, stirred up before they start the school year. Uh, so so for many regions of the country, the school year will start right after Megafest, and it creates an opportunity to get that last uh, vitamin, if you please, uh, before they are inundated with the task of going back to school. So you're really teaching kids. You're really teaching kids about living well. Absolutely, in every aspect of their life, and the value of family, which is something that you and I might have taken for granted. But today, in a contemporary society, people are saying, "You know, does family have a point? Does it have a purpose today? And how has the family changed? It's affected the real estate market. It's affected how we design and build facilities for mm-hmm. families because the traditional contemporary family doesn't exist uh, to the magnitude that it once did. How do we get the kinds of uh, outcomes that we want to get out of non-traditional?" families uh, today, and how can we hold on to that sense of security and well-being that is so necessary for children in a contemporary society that doesn't always lend itself to a man, a woman, a dog, and a one-and-a-half-car garage? You mentioned magnitude. That brings me to your recent accolade. Um, You're now part of the Chamber of Commerce of Dallas. Congratulations, sir. That means a lot. And and you're the first African-American from the clergy to be elected to the Chamber of Commerce? First clergy period to be uh, I'm on the executive board for the Regional Chamber of Commerce, which determines the business uh, communities and how we attract businesses into Dallas. And to be a part of that discussion is a very important role, particularly for clergy to play. It's a very new role that we've not done historically. But I don't think it is who I am as clergy that brought me there, but more so who I am as a business person in that community and mm-hmm. what I do as it relates to films and what have you. Uh, it, it was, in fact, Megafest that made them really discover me. And that plus about 40, 41, 45 million dollars that was dropped into the Dallas economy as a result of Megafest. And all of a sudden they begin to see the relevance of the role that I play, not only on in the pulpit, but in the business world and how there ought to be intersections uh, between faith and finances and, and the film industry of which I'm in uh, so that we can better strategize how to move our city forward and all aspects of our city, not just particular zip codes. So it's what what, what you had done is what got you chosen. Absolutely. Wow. 
Did you find you had to change your language from using the language of God to the language of business when you're dealing with the Chamber of Commerce? I think that not only there, but in any business situation, mm-hmm. we have to be bilingual and sometimes trilingual depending on the diversity of our lives. I haven't lost my original language, but there's no need in speaking in a language that doesn't fit the situation that, that you're in. And to be bilingual creates opportunities for you to uh, be relevant on larger platforms. You know, Jesus said something that I think is quite profound. He said, go to all the world and preach the gospel. And I tell people, he said go, but he didn't say we had to go by camel. So, <laughs> you know, maybe we can go by television. Maybe we can go through Hollywood. Maybe we can go through social media. Maybe we can go through the business world. But we need to infiltrate the world rather than to isolate ourselves as people of faith mm-hmm. from other idioms of thought within the world. And that is a, a tendency that is strongly taught amongst Christians. You know, why would so-and-so be seen with so-and-so? He's not this. He's not a Christian. He's not. Listen, go and talk. Jesus sat with everybody, talked to anybody. When they first found, uh, when they lost him in the temple, according to the scriptures, he turned up around the doctors and the lawyers and confounded them for days. He didn't just talk to rabbis and priests. He interacted at the intersections of life because faith, say what you want to, regardless of your belief system, you cannot uh, eradicate faith out of the history and the fibers of this country. It has, mm-hmm. And not only this country, but every country. It has something to do with the art that we've seen down through uh, various ages of life. It has something to do with the human trajectory. You cannot discuss who we are as a species and leave faith out of it because it has shaped some of the values, some of the ideas, and even some of the constitutional references that we have in the country today. So good communication is really not just what's said, it's also what's understood. Absolutely. Right? And to be understood is paramount. And in order to be understood, we have to be versatile enough uh, to sit where people sit and communicate in the language that they can understand. And talking about communication, let's talk about this whole thing called Conversations with America. You've launched this nationwide research. Yes. What was your objective? To not lose touch with where people are, to understand what they care about. Uh, there's nothing worse than treating an area that I'm, if I were a physician and I were treating your knee and your head were hurting, mm. I might be really good at knees, but if I'm not getting the medicine where you need it, am I really relevant? So the conversation with America was to do just a litmus test uh, with people about attitudes so that they could better understand uh, where where America is right now and not to always be dependent upon what we read in the paper or saw on television Mm -hmm. to determine where America is. I'm kind of tired of people telling us how we feel. I want to go right to the horse's mouth and get a better idea of uh, what is attitude? Is it positive? Is it negative? And and how do we uh, move the conversation forward in this country in a positive way? Is America's church suffering from declining followers? You know, uh, there's some interesting stats that suggest that organized religion, particularly Mm -hmm. amongst denominations, is in decline. And that really hit uh, the headlines all across the country. But what they didn't read all the way through the report, when you really get down into it, it isn't saying that America is departing from the faith. It is saying that America is departing from uh, traditional denominational organizational structures. There's a rebirthing of, for instance, in in my own congregation, uh, I might have 8,000 people on the main campus and maybe 3,000 or 4,000 on the peripheral campuses any given Sunday. But I've got 30,000 people streaming online. Wow. 30,000 people didn't go to church that morning, but they're they're going to church on their phone. They're going to church on their iPad. They're going to church while they're at work. And so if the church is going to remain relevant, 
Again, we have to speak in the language where people are listening, and they're not always sitting in the pew every Sunday. That's really the impetus why I started doing films in the first place, because I realized that there were more people in theaters on Friday night than there are in pews on Sunday morning. And if we are going to influence the culture, we have to be a part of the culture we want to influence. And it's funny you say that, because when I asked my friends uh, last week why they stopped going, it's not because they stopped their religion, like you said. Mm -hmm. It was um, cases of what they said was they found maybe their pastor boring, mm. uh, they, their own motivation, their lack of it, uh, generational incompatibility of being not relevant to modern lifestyles yeah. coming from the pulpit. Um, think about this for a minute. But when you think about recent reports suggest that, that the attention span of, of Americans is, is less than goldfish, mm -hmm. uh, it becomes more challenging for one man by himself, no props, no cast behind him, not necessarily any music behind him, to captivate an audience for 40 minutes or 30 minutes or an hour, however long he speaks. Right. So this notion of the, the pulpiteer becoming boring is not just a reflection of the oratorical skills of the person who's speaking, but it also is a reflection of the attention span of those who are listening. And we have to become much more creative in how we communicate today because we're trying to captivate an audience who is used to being stimulated auditorially, intellectually, spiritually. You get all of that when you do television and other things. And so it's very, very important that we become versatile in how, how we convey the message. The message has not changed, mm. but the method has to change in order for us to remain relevant. But you never do anything without a reason. So are you use, going to use this research to build a bridge over the notion of separation of church and state? Are you trying to congregate rather than separate? Well, we, we cannot separate uh, faith from politics, from business, and from everything else because faith exists in the people we seek to mm -hmm. serve. And if we're going to be citizens of the U.S., and if the citizens of the U.S. are predominantly people of faith, and they are, then we cannot ignore faith from the conversation of serving those citizens. To exempt or discriminate against a faith-based entity just because they have a faith base right. is a, a type of discrimination that is becoming pervasive in our society, but is dangerous, dangerous, dangerous to do. And so, because we are people of faith, doesn't make doesn't make us any less consumers, any less American, any less citizens of this country. And I think our values and thoughts have to be contemplated by elected officials, by corporations, and everyone else. And so, yes, I want to build a bridge in that way. Yes, I want to see uh, uh, us influence the culture, and I, yes, I want our values to be included in the discussions that are contemporary in our society right now. Now, with the recent events in Ferguson and Baltimore, we saw the protesters, we saw the police, we saw the National Guard. We didn't see the church. Doesn't the church need to go from the pulpit to the street? You know something? We didn't see the church because the media didn't cover it. It was not that the church was not there. I happen to know quite a few clergy who were walking the streets in Baltimore. Didn't get a lot of press, but they were out there holding meetings, still continue to work with the elected officials in that city to bring about a change. But those stories aren't necessarily sexy stories for the press to cover today to the degree that they ought to. And I think that the assumption that because it wasn't covered, that, that it wasn't there is an inaccurate assumption. The church was uh, really on ground level zero, particularly the church in Baltimore. And it is appropriate that the local church take over the local issue because they live in that area. They understand that issue. And one of the things that has been very detrimental in our society is outside people coming in telling other people what they ought to do. The people who live in Baltimore, who work in Baltimore, who understand the politics of Baltimore need to be the first responders, and they were the first 
first responders on the ground dealing with the issues, walking the streets. I've got several pastor friends who were out there walking the streets and risking the danger to try to bring peace into a very volatile situation. What we need is more unification in the church across black, white, and brown lines uh, when these sorts of issues apply. America has a tendency to describe the conflict by the color of the person. And and that's a real problem. What we really need, this is not a black problem. This is not a white problem. This is not a brown problem. It's an American problem. And we need the buy-in of the entire church to really take on the issues that matter the most. But do you find, in, in these two particular instances, there were scenarios where the influence of the church wasn't great enough. Does that mean that the majority of people don't believe in their clergy anymore? I don't think that means that. I think that the influence of the church wasn't effective from a preemptive perspective. What would have been desirable rather than to be first responders is to facilitate the kinds of conversations that would have avoided the whole dilemma in the first place. And I think that means that the church needs to be much more proactive in getting involved in the the needs of the community. But the church alone cannot do it. I think the church, in concert with elected officials and corporate leaders, have to become involved because if you're going to participate in a community, if you're going to draw resources out of a community, you also have to contribute to that community. I'm not just talking about dollars, but attention and action in solving the problems that make the community still be a viable option as a business person. So what role would you suggest that the church play between the police and the community? I think that we have to be translators, that we have to communicate for common good. I think that we have to raise the bar on the conversation because the conversation as it exists right now uh, suggests that the whole problem with the criminal justice system is being acted out on the sidewalk, when in reality it is much, much deeper than that. It's in the policies. It's in how politics has hijacked the criminal justice system to get elected, and we've got went through the era of being tough on crime. We've become so tough on crime that, that building prisoners, prisons has become big business as it hit the New York Stock Exchange. Mm. That's, that's, that's not the business America needs to be in. Yeah. Well, we spend more money to incarcerate than it would cost us to rehabilitate. Incarceration has become big business in this country. That's very detrimental to who we are as a society. I think that we could use our dollars better building universities than we would building prisons. That's profound. Uh, yes, you're absolutely right now that I think about it. Now, the poll you've taken, it actually compares sentiments. I was reading it the other day. Uh, it c- compares sentiments among whites, African-Americans, and Hispanics. And it was interesting. Why is it important to segregate when we are trying to congregate? Well, what we did was uh, segregate by reaction and mm-hmm. then found that the reactions gave us conclusions based on the ethnicity of the individual, which was a bit surprising to me. It was not a universal uh, response. No, it wasn't. And, and the thing that got me about it, uh, blacks and browns who suffer the greatest disparity when it comes to the economic rebound uh, often had the most optimistic attitude. And I think that optimism is based on who we listen to. Uh, We have a tendency to listen at media outlets that reinforce our position. 
So depending on who you listen at, how what you think is going on in the country today. And I think that has led to a great polarization in our country in a way that may drive up ratings. But it isn't good for the country when it comes to solving conflict. Mm-hmm. It is not what, what divides us that we need to focus on. It is what unites us. And so I got involved uh, with Bishop Harry Jackson and uh, Pastor James Robinson uh, uh, to bring together a task force of clergy so that we could sit down and begin to talk across our diversities about how we could become more unified and focus on what unites us rather than what divides us. One of the results I found very interesting. 62% of African Americans believe the economy is headed in the right direction. And then in your research, it said 63% of whites feel it's in the wrong direction. Why is there such a different thinking? Well, I think it goes back to what I just said. I think that the thinking, our thinking is developed based on the information we receive. So if we're coming to a different conclusion, it's because we're listening at a different equation. And depending on what you're reading or depending on who you're watching, that's going to help shape your worldview. And I think that's a real problem in our society that we cannot find a a pure place to galvanize information that doesn't in some way sway us Mm. into a position on an issue. We're living in a society now where you must have a position and you must have a label or we're uncomfortable with it in a way that bothers me. But are we getting to the truth? Because when you write the books you read, then your conclusions are going to be skewed. I think what we need is to come together across all lines and have open conversations, not to determine who's right, Mm. because I suspect that all of us are a little bit wrong in some way. And when we come together and we cross-pollinate ideas, we can take the best from each perspective and bring them together for the good of the country, much like a husband and a wife do for the good of the children. It's not that mom was all right or all wrong. Sometimes we don't realize that until we get grown. It's not that dad was all right or all wrong, but truth is somewhere in the middle. And I think that we have to forsake the ends and go for the middle if we are serious about rebuilding this country. Also in one of your... Uh, the research findings was a majority of Americans feel they don't have the same economic opportunities as their parents' generation. I found that troubling because are these people possibly misguided or have a certain sense of entitlement? Because technology has changed the world. It's created actually more opportunities. And these days, if you think about it, the way we saw our future or see our future, is very different from the way our parents saw our future because it's all about time frame. Um, our future is tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Our parents' future was a lifetime. Mm-hmm. I would argue that there may, there may be more opportunities, but those opportunities are very exclusive in the demographics of who they seek to serve. Mm. Uh, when I grew up in West Virginia and also like Pittsburgh, states like West Virginia, Pittsburgh, Ohio, you could be a blue-collar worker and make a real nice living, sometimes make more of a living than the people who supervise working on a loading dock. Uh, we had a lot of uh, services that were being provided. Indust- industry was very vibrant at that time. And so back in my parents' generation, there were plenty of opportunities to have a healthy, robust middle class. Right. 
today, there are great opportunities, but for people who have prepared themselves for those opportunities, for those people who in the middle of their lives got cut back, got shut down, factories got shut down, shipped abroad, they find themselves with less opportunities because they're not able to move up into this information age. Uh, they're finding it difficult to move up. I'm not, I shouldn't say they're not able. They're finding, they're finding it intimidating to move into the information age, and yet they're falling into an abyss of a poverty level. Level that is staggering. And so it depends on the education and academic level of the individual, how you perceive the country. But that's also their failing, isn't it? Because information, education, training is available. I think I, I think it is in part their failing that we all have a responsibility to remain relevant. But I don't think that the whole burden of the problem should rest upon the person who, who can't find a job. Mm. I think it, we have to take some responsibility for shipping those jobs overseas. We have to take some responsibility because every doctor needs a plumber. <laughs> we have to take some of those responsibilities back home and not being intentional about creating opportunities for our people. And it's very difficult to create an opportunity for yourself, say you become entrepreneurial. And the problem with entrepreneurship is you need a certain capital base in order to be a great entrepreneur. And with the banks shutting down for a period of time, and even after they rebounded, not offering money and capital to small business uh, people, it creates a conundrum. So we're having first generation of people who are going below the poverty line that we have not seen for a number of years. Consequently, you see the anger in Ferguson, the anger that we see in Baltimore is not just over uh, what has been perpetrated to have happened on the streets, but it is the frustration of a, a, an increasing number of people who are finding themselves homeless for the first time, lost their homes, can't get a job, did some sort of misdemeanor, nonviolent crime, and have a felony on their records that they committed when they were 18. Now you're 42 and you still can't get beyond it. If you do get a job, you're paying taxes to a government that doesn't allow you to vote. These kinds of issues... We need to take them on and look deeper than this bootstrap idea. And I'm very much a bootstrap person. I mm -hmm. believe in bootstraps. But give me some straps to pull up. If I don't have the straps to pull up, I can't be a bootstrap person. Obviously, you conducted the research. But what was the most alarming finding that you got from it? You know, one of the things uh, was the race factor and how we see things differently based on race. But one of the other things that the report brought out that was also interesting, we see things differently based on age. Yes. So, so the perspectives of people based on their age had a lot to do with how they see the country and how they see themselves. And the other factor that I thought was equally interesting is based on regions, that certain regions have a different perspective than others. If you're living in a, a region in this country that was once robust because they produced steel out of the steel mills and that has gone away, your perception about the rebounding of the economy is affected by the region that you live in. If you live in a more agricultural or more uh, hospitality-oriented area, you might have a different perspective as to how it, uh, robust the economy is right. because that particular region makes its money from doing something that is still vibrant and useful. Now, in... in Baltimore and Ferguson. I could be wrong, but I didn't see significant African-American leadership come out and mm, sort of manage the situation. A couple of things I'd like to say there. First of all, uh, I have learned over my life that real leadership isn't always seen, it's felt. 
And and some of the people who were working the hardest to bring about the change in Baltimore and in Ferguson mm-hmm. uh, weren't the kinds of people who were chasing cameras or doing interviews. So we don't always get to see it from that. The second thing I'd like to suggest to you, trouble and adversity creates opportunities for leadership. Sometimes in the midst of the crisis, great leadership arises throughout the history of this country. Some of the great greatest presidents that we've ever had were great presidents in part because their leadership was painted on the canvas of uh, the civil rights movement or uh, the abolitionists uh, with slavery or the, uh, the, the the times in our country that we were really perplexed coming down to the iron wall and so forth and so on. Mm. So that has a lot to do with it. The, the third thing I'd like to say that is, to me, the most important point to bring up, we are seeing great changes in our world today, say, uh, through the gay community, and yet they don't have a particular face that represents the leadership for for the gay community. So I don't think it necessarily is about a person or a personality to bring about change, but the change of an ideology, whether it comes to an individual or whether it comes to an organization or whether it comes to a groundswell of gradually changing the culture, the opportunities the opportunities to lead are not always uh, relegated over to a particular face that stands in front of us. And as it has been throughout history, mm. sometimes the face who gets the credit is not the one who did the work. It's so true. That's so true. What would you like for the next president to take control of? Uh, what would be the top three things that you think American society, the American nation needs to fix? We need to fix our education system. Absolutely. We cannot <clears throat> ignore it any longer. The intellectual pool is declining mm-hmm. in such a way that it's really alarming. Mm-hmm. And, and while we pump money into uh, defense and other areas which are also important, if we lose our intellectual base, then we are dumbing down America to our own demise. We're now number 25 amongst other nations in terms of education, and that's reprehensible. Oh, my God. <laughs> we, we, what are the other 24 countries doing that we need to emulate? Mm-hmm. We don't have to recreate the wheel. Uh, you cannot tell me that this country is not smart enough to do better with education. Second thing that I think really needs uh, a federal hand to address is the overall uh, re- rehabilitation of the criminal justice system. We have a criminal justice system that has not caught up to the information age. We have no laws or no contemporary laws that are centered around uh, social media. Mm-hmm. Our laws are antiquated. They're antiquated in many aspects. We have made laws that no longer fit the contemporary times, and we need to challenge those laws. We don't have anyone to police the police appropriately. <laughs> there are so many defects in our criminal justice system that we need to stand back and take a real good look at that. I think there's something else we can build in this country and create jobs for people other than prisons. And we need to take a good look at that because our prisons right now are starting to look like the plantations of the 21st century, and it doesn't have to be that way. Do you think you would ever run for president? (laughs) I'm not. I'm I'm in 2020. Actually, a great tagline. The man with 2020 vision. The Apostle Paul. Are you, are you going towards that? The Apostle Paul said, we are not careful to answer you regarding this. Absolutely not. Why not? <laughs> That's the one thing you don't have to worry about me doing. And I, I You've th- done everything else. You're master of the pulpit, master of business. You're now get, getting to be a great master on current affairs. It's what the country needs. 
I don't think it's faith, my, business, and an understanding of the issues. I, I think I, I that's don't, all that's left. You've done everything else. Yeah, don't worry, I'm never going to do it, no matter what you say. But he, 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 you're very persuasive. But, <laughs> but but I hate to disappoint you. I, to be honest, I, one, it's not my calling to do that. I don't see that as my instinctive purpose in the earth uh, to to go into politics. It's not my passion. Mm-hmm. So I don't think you should have somebody in politics. But let me tell you, not, in your world, there's a lot of politics. Oh, absolutely. In business, and I'm sure in the clergy. I mean, it's just a human nature. But our political atmosphere has become so toxic that I think even even good people would drown in the water of the politics we have today. Wow. And so consequently, are we getting America's best and brightest running for office? Or have we become such voyeurs into the private lives of the leadership that we have that we have so scrutinized our best and brightest people that they would not risk their careers to run for office? Say it, Bishop. Say it. We've created a dilemma. If the founding fathers had to live in the era that we live in today, would they have been able to be They'd be building more jails. They'd be building more jails, absolutely. The civil rights movement wouldn't have been what it is today had we lived in an era of such close scrutiny. Uh, The truth of the matter is some of our best and brightest people are not going to run for office because they don't want to be castigated all over the press. The process with which you are considered eligible has become so toxic. And all then, the more reason that America needs you and America deserves you. Here, here's, here's the question. Uh, I, I'm going to step completely over that. But here, here, here's the question. Do we need a new chef in the kitchen when we have an oven that doesn't work? I think we have the misnomer that changing the chef means we've changed the kitchen. When, in fact, in reality, we have a dysfunctional political system. And as long as our political system is gridlocked like it is, Mm. you can change personalities. You can put a new hat on a new guy and bring him in the kitchen. But if you don't take the time to fix the oven, you're not going to change the results of what is coming out of Washington, D.C. Wow. Well, you've still got five years to think about it. But the overall summary from the poll was that six in ten Americans believe the U.S. economy is headed in the right direction. So which... This means in some way that they sort of feel more empowered to achieve their destiny. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think people are considering new things that they never thought before. Mm. They're becoming much more entrepreneurial than they've ever been before. They're having to become more creative in how they do it. And they are recognizing that just because I fell down, it is not my destiny to stay down. Mm. And I think when people get that upward mobility and that upward mentality, uh, even before they get the mobility, if they have the mentality, the mentality always uh, comes before the mobility. So that leads me to your new book that's going to be hitting the stores pretty soon. And I can't wait because I thought Instinct, and I told this to you earlier, was a masterpiece. But Thank I have you. an observation here, and I actually tweeted it out to you yesterday. In 2012, you talked about transformation. Mm-hmm. In 2013, you talked about living with a purpose. In 2014, you talked about Instinct. And in 2015, you're going to be talking about destiny. If I put all these themes together, they become pieces of a puzzle that start to form a picture. Because here I go. If I start transforming myself by living with a purpose and I connect with my instincts, I'll achieve my destiny. Absolutely. You're absolutely right. You've been planning this all along? Different books, an ongoing conversation. No, it was not a master plan. I think that I write as I walk. 
as my journey walks, as I evolve as a person, as I have mm. new sets of experiences, I write again because I think deeper, because I've met people that inspired me, that I learned from, people like yourself. Uh, irrigate. You say the nicest thing. <laughs> Thank you. But they, they irrigate the streams of my consciousness. Mm. And consequently, I walk away with fresh ideology that normally I would not have and normally the clergy wouldn't have. Most of us live within the confines of what we do. All the physicians hang out with physicians. All the lawyers hang out with lawyers. All the preachers hang out with preachers. I have the unique opportunity to hang out with you and then go to— Ain't that a treat? It's, it's such a joy. Or then go to Sony. <laughs> That's and, what she said. And, you know, <laughs> let's come up. Let's come up. Uh, and then go to, to Michael Linton and sit down with the CEO of Sony. Right. Not all clergy have those opportunities. No, they don't. Because but they don't create that opportunity, They though. should create those opportunities. Not just clergy, but all of us should get out of— our little boats and our little safety nets mm. and go out there and embrace the world and talk to people who think differently, who dress differently, who vote differently. You don't have to uh, segregate yourself from other people just mm. because you disagree over a point or two. Is destiny a destination or a state of being? I would say this. I define destiny being to instincts what a magnet is to metal. Uh, instincts is where you identify what is in your core. Right. Destiny is where you begin to recognize that there's something drawing me outside of me, something that will not let me languish in depression or fear or mediocrity. Uh, most of us have always sensed some 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 upward pull some 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 gravitational pull beyond us uh that has caused us to uh survive and supersede the adversities of life and to me that is destiny but to to add an addendum to what you say what we have to watch out for is that we don't hold the celebration at bay until we reach the destination we've got to enjoy the journey We've got to enjoy every pit stop along the way. Uh, when I talk about destiny, I also talk about destiny steps. And it, it means that I haven't arrived yet, but I'm moving in that direction. And everything that moves you closer to your destiny is a destiny step. And every person, this, this encompasses the relationships that you have. Instead of building relationships around people who relate to where you came from, we need to build relationships around people who relate to where you're going. Those are destiny relationships. And when we do that, it changes the entire game. But does your destiny keep changing? If it was in your destiny to get 30 million followers and you got that, now you're not the sort of man to rest. Mm -hmm. Now you want 50 million. So your destiny keeps changing. Well, this uh, I'm not the guy who goes from 30 million to 50 million. It may be that you cap at 30 million and maybe you write books of reflection about 30 million. It it's not always bigger bigger bigger. I think that's that's capitalism and in its own right, uh it could be good for the country but it's bad for the individual to be insatiable. I think we need to find purpose beyond counting numbers. Because sometimes the value of your life is not in the tabulated figure of your net worth or how many people you speak to or how many people follow you on Facebook. We love to count things. But, but that's not bad, though, is it? Well, it's, it's a great standard to measure. It is one standard, but it shouldn't be the only standard. Because I agree. if it's the only standard, you will mistake quantity for quality. Right. 
And I think that's a, that's a great deficit in our country. Anytime we become so engrossed with how many that we don't inspect what kind, then we're going to have a deficit as it relates to quality. Mm. See, that's not going to work with my wife because if she's only got five handbags and I tell, <coughs> and I tell her that, you know, you can't have the six, but you have me, well, that's not going to work. <laughs> Now I'll let you find that out. <laughs> <laughs> you're right. You're never going to make president. Um, but I was running a survey of my own when I was talking. I was talking to my friends and saying, you know, what's your vision? What's your understanding of destiny? And, and it was interesting because they said, and, and some of them are in businesses and, and they're not doing that well. They're actually failing. They often confuse failure with destiny. They say when they fail in their business, they felt they've worked the hardest they possibly can. But it's not in their destiny to make more money or to be successful. Maybe they need to try something else. That was very interesting, I thought. It is But I can't see you writing about that. No, because I don't see failure as a deficit to destiny. I think failure can often be a, a coach to destiny. Mm. We learn by failures. Uh, that's how we learn how to walk, by falling, by tripping, by making mistakes. Uh, we learn through the things that we've suffered to be better, to be stronger, to be more focused. And, and, and I think one of the problems that we have in our society today is that we keep trying things uh, so that we can win because we think that if we win, that says something about us. But you have to work from your core and understand whether the circumstances validated or not, the path I'm on is important. It may run into obstacles. There may be pit stops along the way. There may be potholes along the way. But I am going in this direction because I believe in what I'm doing. If you don't believe in what you're doing, your customers or anybody else you seek to serve is not going to believe in what you're doing. And you cannot allow a temporary setback to become a setup for giving up. You have to use the setback as an opportunity to recalibrate, reevaluate, redirect, but never to, to, to terminate what you started out to do. Another thing that came out from my conversation was people confuse inaction with destiny, implying that if they just sit and wait, destiny will get them to where they want. Yeah. If it's going to happen, it's going to happen. You know that saying. Yeah, yeah, but that, that, that's, that's not the way destiny works. You have to walk it out. You, it'll, I, I tell people all the time, it will work if you work it. Okay, destiny just gives you permission, but action gives you access. So if you have permission to go to another level, but you won't go up the steps, you won't get there. It's very important that we be uh, progressively making sure that our actions are in alignment with our destiny. Absolves us from uh, the luxury of assuming that we can sit uh, on the seat of do-nothing and just say, if it's meant to be, it's going to be. That's not at all what I have found destiny to be. Destiny is the permission to go to the next level. It gives me the permission. It clears the road, mm -hmm. but it does not drive the car. What's your destiny, Bishop? <laughs> I think at this stage in my life, my destiny is to help other people reach theirs. And, and as I do that, I remain relevant in proportion to my ability to help other people reach what they're trying to reach. But then in the process, where do you get to? You cannot lift people and fall yourself. And that's the thing that people don't realize. The higher I push you, the higher I've got to go to. 
And so I, I don't worry about where I land on the rector scale. I worry about where you land on the rector scale because if I do that, automatically the consequence of pushing you elevates me. I don't think you're pushing us. I think you're pulling us. You're always ahead of us. <laughs> really? Yeah. I need to think about that. Uh, I don't know whether I'm ahead or not. I, I think that I see my— Well, look at your pulpit. Look at your congregation. Look at your followers. You have to be ahead. I think that I am perched in a, in a unique position to have a very fresh perspective, uh, be, not only because of who I am in the faith world, but who I am in the business world, who I am in life, who I am as a minority in this country. All of that helps to shape my worldview, mm-hmm. and out of that worldview evolves a discussion of which I am a contributor, but not a controller. You see, we contribute by the books we write and the thoughts we think, but we we are not the end all of information. Right. We are. Uh, it is a collaborative effort, and so I need the infusion of other ideologies to help balance my perspective because my perspective is a derivative of my situation, my position, my circumstances, my age, my era, my gender, my ethnicity. All contribute to the way that I think. But anytime we think that the way that we think is the sum total of wisdom, we're in error already because it, life is designed that wisdom be derived through a collaborative effort of both speaking and listening. That's why we have a mouth and two ears, right. one mouth, two ears. We ought to listen twice as much as we speak. When's the book out? <laughs> the book is coming out August the 5th. Uh, it's available. They can pre-order on Amazon.com, but it will hit streets August the 5th. And um, give us some details about Megafest. Where can we find if we want to buy? Are you selling it by tickets or what's the Yeah, they, they need to uh, register. Uh, they need to register and they can go to mega-fest.com and get more information about it, mega-fest.com. Mm-hmm. And see all the different artists and actors and we're adding to it every day. And they can go onto our website and get that information, find out the hotels that they want to stay in and how many rooms that they need. The other thing is for groups, whether they're sororities, family reunions or churches, there are group rates of Available, uh, to bring the, the price even more and more affordable. Uh, the registration, it's not exorbitant. It is really designed so that everybody can go and have a good time and enjoy themselves and tailor make the event to fit your area of interest. If you're not interested in the services that we're going to have, but you want to go to the film festival and the concerts and the comedy shows, you can design your own experience at Megafest centered around what you want to go see and do. So it's almost a city pass. Exactly. Wow. Now, this is being held at Dallas, right? Yes. Okay, good. I'm going to be there. Good. Yeah. Wouldn't be and right. And how is Sable and Bentley? How are they? <laughs> They're doing Those two well. little monsters. How are they my doing? My dogs. <laughs> oh, my goodness. They're doing well. Oh, my goodness. Roman Connie Corsos. And they, uh, they, the only thing with them is they love on you. When they love on you, they slobber on you. Mm-hmm. So don't let them love you when you get I'm ready to go I'm used to it because I have a huge female fan following. It happens all the time. <laughs> oh, God. <help> me. <laughs> <laughs> Can I pray? Oh. <laughs> Bishop, you came as a guest. You're leaving as a friend. I want you to come back as a family. 
I think it's in your destiny that you'll be back. So thank you for sharing your world with us. Thank you for sharing your platform with me. Ladies and gentlemen, that was the Mega Bishop T.D. Jakes. Thank you for listening. A special shout-out of thanks to the wonderful Regina Lewis for making this show happen. And, of course, my dream team, William Sanchez and Rick Buser. Your comments and your follow are so very welcome on my Twitter account and my Facebook page. Please also follow the Bishop, his Twitter and Facebook to find out more about Megafest and Destiny. If my instincts are correct, my destiny is to be back here next Sunday, 6 p.m. Eastern. And until then, have a very productive and a happy week ahead.